Escape from Plan A. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, I'm your host for today, uh, Adam uh, Goodman, uh, and I'm here with Diana. Hey, everyone. We're also here uh, with returning guest, um, J.S. Lee. Hey. Today, we have Jessica on. Um, She is um, a Korean-American adoptee, author. She's written a bunch of articles for us in our magazine, But we have her on today because we want to discuss her new book, Everyone Was Falling, coming out when? September 1st. September 1st. Uh, Did you just want to give a little introduction? So it starts off on the weekend of July 4th, and there is a shooting at a 20th high school reunion in a small U.S. town that kills 56 people. Three survive, and that's how it begins. And it has three different uh, protagonists. The main person is Lucy. She's a queer Asian adoptee who, um, whose past trauma hypervigilance leads them to safety. And she's sort of dubbed the hero for that. There's a white woman named Christy. She's sort of the town treasure. She's perceived as the star. And she uses YouTube for fame to sort of capitalize on the situation. And then there's Donna, who's the only former black student of Bixby who becomes suspect. So despite what her wealthy father has done for the town, she's uh, sort of vilified in that way while she's just trying to cope with the aftermath. Um, And the three women... They're working through their own version of PTSD and their differences. They are sort of reconnected through this reunion and this event. They're trying to get some sort of justice and some answers, but there's just a lot of uh, stuff involved in terms of racism and coping with trauma and opportunists, that sort of thing. Yeah, so the book you know, starts out like fast, right? I mean, there's no buildup. As you mentioned, I mean, you know, Lucy is, you're thrust into the story and Lucy's sort of talking to a police officer and there's the shooting and just everything. Like there's so many questions that come into mind and and, and it's so fast paced. So like that, that really caught me. I was like, oh, I'm like immediately hooked on on what's going on i i want to know who lucy is like you know why is she here like what happened you know who these other characters like you mentioned christy and donna so i thought that was you know i i immediately wanted to read more good yeah so like what was there anything of your like personal experiences that informed the plot or the characters the story overall was informed by my own frustrations with this country in regards to race, politics, gun violence, and everything, everything really. I started writing it in December 2016, uh, so you know when that was, just after yeah. Trump's election. And it had already been a hellish year of witnessing people saying all kinds of things that they weren't really open about before. You know, I grew up in a very white uh, town, a white family, uh, white extended family, 
it was it was pretty horrifying. So it was a way for me to sort of process that. My identity uh, is like Lucy's. Uh, she's a queer Asian adoptee, but I'm less marginalized than her because I'm in a cis hetero appearing relationship. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I always draw from my own experiences when creating these fictional characters and situations. As far as the plot goes, that was just born out of my need to work through how messed up the systems are and how, yeah, yeah. I just like wanted to show that they're not broken, but built by design. So, uh, you know, it's really, I wanted to show how hard it is and how unlikely it is to receive justice through the common protocols. Really, I just, I read the Audre Lorde book recently after I'd finished Everyone was falling, but you know the quote, the very famous quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Yes. Yeah, that pretty much sums up a lot of what I want to convey in the book, just like how marginalized people, we need to find creative ways to work around the system rather than through it. Because like, even though it might work for some, overall, it's built to fail us. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely got those, you know, I, I understood that um, as I was reading the book. Cool. Yeah, it was very effective. Like, like everything about, about it that you were describing came through to me. And it was, uh, it was very real, you know, but it wasn't like uh, preachy, you know, it was like, uh, everything was everything that we were trying to go for was done through the story and embodied in the characters in a really like in a really fluid way. And, you know, like there was stuff going on in the plot in every single chapter that was, you know, very suspenseful. So it was like plot driven and it was also very uh, well characterized. And I just, I read it and I was just incredibly impressed by what a seamless job that you did so you know (laughs) we're very lucky to have you and you know uh talk to us and to just know you and you have you write for us uh yeah i mean i'll second that the 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 friendship of the three main characters really rang true to me especially uh, lucy and donna like lucy and donna are the most out of like out of place characters uh, um, in the town that they grew up in, um, yeah. but for similar but different reasons, right? And I and I and I thought there was that interaction with um, Donna's husband. I think his name is Jacob. Yes. Yep. That conversation, it was the most uncomfortable for me to read. I would say, even though there are some yeah. other you know characters like um, Lynette, who's um, the the sort of the L.A show business sort of grifter who who steals uh, who's like a um who's like a, a, a you know like a um steals the story but it's and some of those were very uncomfortable as well but the one with with lucy and jacob even though it's short really cuts to some of the real conversations and tensions between i think um a, the asian american community and and the black american community uh when it comes to 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 racism social justice you know, progressive or left politics. So I thought that was that was really well crafted, even though it was probably only a, maybe even like a page of a yeah. conversation. But I really, 
I mean, and, and I and it's and it's brave, I think, to sort of put that stuff in there. So you know, I was impressed by that as well. Like all the fraught conversations that and interactions. Yeah, so many, like just so so many different issues were covered. It was like you hit so many notes. It was like a like a Mozart concerto or something. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea that like Adana and Lucy um, became friends just through that like that shared difference, but they're actually very different people um, mm-hmm. in their home lives, uh, or like their families were different, um, and even their backgrounds are different. But they're both non-white. You know, the only basically the only non-white kids in this town that that really rang true did did either of you have experiences like that growing up yes yeah i did so like I, yeah i mean as i was reading it and 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 what what also really was great to me was how much of the korean and asian adoptee experience was was really represented so well and and truthfully and genuinely and putting us into like that racial conversation in America, where oftentimes we're you know we're very much forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. So I really I thought you did you know in terms of representing Asian uh, adoptee voices like Asian adoptee voices you know and experience I think you did a really great job. Um, Thank you. So. That's really good to hear. Yeah, because I, mean, I uh, it's hard because you're never going to represent everybody's experience. Of course. Um, in the experience of my um, of the protagonist in my last book, Kodium, some people were really upset because mm. they felt like I was erasing their experience. Yeah, there are some. There are going to be some universal truths there, but there's also going to be you know you're telling a specific story, so of course. it's really hard to to strike that balance. But I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, and you know, I I get the idea. Um, some of the frustration that like someone, people who would criticize you and say, "Oh, you're, you know, you didn't represent my experience," and um, they feel sort of slighted by that. And I think that's because, and and I think it's also similar to just Asian American sort of creative outlet or creative uh, um, being a creative and creating um, content or, or or writing. Is that we just haven't had that represented representation for so long that mm-hmm. um, every little piece is sort of scrutinized and 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 held to a standard that no piece of art can fulfill. You know, there's no way for it to you know represent every viewpoint uh, in, in one character. So I, I get that, but I try to you know I, I'm a I'm a cis hetero man. You know, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a queer queer woman but i i still understood a lot of the you know what was being said so you know i, I try to right. so I, I i appreciate the character i feel like that that feeling of erasure happens yeah. especially when there's you know only one book or one movie sure. or one representation but you know mm. like there's there's a lot more adoptee uh, centered books now and authors yeah. like there's there's Korean adoptee writers specifically. So mm-hmm. do you feel like that there's still the pressure of that as either a reader or as a writer? I mean, as a reader, no, 
Um, I know that they're, you know, honestly, we have so many different experiences. This is, I get more offended by people who say, oh, aren't you going to write about something else? And I'm like, mm-hmm. does anyone say that about white cis hetero people? Seriously, yeah, right? like we have so many different kinds of lives and stories. So no, um, but as a writer, I do. I'm conscious of it in a way, but I'm still going to tell the story I want to tell. But this is all reminding me of that amazing. Uh, I think it might have been a TED talk by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, but she's an author, a Nigerian author, and she had this, I don't know, maybe it's like four years ago now, put out this talk about the danger of a single story. And mm-hmm. it's basically all about this, you know, how the lack of plenitude is really the issue. Oh, I remember that. I think it was like she had written a character whose dad was violent. And then some reader came up to her and said, oh, are like, do all Nigerian men beat their wives or something right. like that? Yeah. 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 You make such a good, great point, Diana, about how when it's like one, one piece of, uh, uh, you know, one novel, everything get you know, it just, it's that, it's a danger of that single representation. Um, yeah. But when there's even- so many... You know, we don't need to put it on every single piece to be like universal. Yeah. And even honestly, like even if there's 20, that's still not enough. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. When you're talking about the amount that's that else uh, that's out there. But yeah, I mean, I've tried to, um, as a reader, not put that in, in, in my head as I'm reading it, sort of to judge it from like, what are they missing uh, perspective? And, you know, and you're not always successful, but I try to like concentrate on what, what is there? What are you, you know, what were you, Jessica, trying to, to portray? What story are right. you telling? Um, not, not, oh, what are they not telling? And what would I rather they told? Um, yeah. And maybe that's just because of like years of working on the magazine, right? And stuff and like writing a little bit on my own, you know, being on a podcast that I'm like, well, I'm sort of a creator in my own way now. And if I want to say it or do it, then I'll, you know, because I don't see it, then what's, I can write it, I can say it, you know, I don't need to sort of sit here and just critique that it doesn't exist. Right. Do you feel much more empowered now that you're doing uh, this podcast and also the one from the Guide Foundation, which we can pluck a little bit if you want? Yeah, no, yeah, I do. I feel more empowered. For sure. Uh, have you felt that as you've as you've um, written more, uh, Jessica? That like you just you've you've started to, you've become felt more empowered. Yeah, honestly, there's this is so uh, heavy because I was very much censored as a kid. Um, oh wow! Okay. Yeah, like my diary was spied on. Things were read out loud, Oof. and I was always like policed on what I was allowed to like say and do. So like it got to the point where I started being a people pleaser, right? As an adoptee, it's especially hard. And um, I would write what I knew would make people happy. And I won awards at school and Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I made everybody happy that way. So it was a real like empowering thing to decide you know, fuck that. I'm going to write what I really want to say. And if it means people are going to get upset with me, then so be it. 
because this is who I really am. Yeah, I mean, that just really resonates with me. Like, yeah. I, I, you don't have to say any more than that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, you, I, I learned very early, like you said, I mean, I think people pleasing is definitely something that is, a, is very common in adoptees, no matter whether they're like transracial and international like us or just, you know, domestic adoptees. And yeah, like you, you start to do things because you realize that like you get praise for them. Uh, it can be a real mind fuck. Because <laughs> then like as you, you know, because I think still the dissonance is there in your head, right? Like it, you sort of maybe subconsciously realize like that's not exact, that's not who I really am actually. But you keep doing it because of that anxiety and fear and wanting to please, you know, and I'm really glad, you know, you, you've worked through that and you know, how, however much you have and, and you've gotten to the place where, now where you can sort of tell all the stories that you want to tell because for selfishly, I get to read your books. <laughs> so, like, so I, I totally understand what you're saying there. I mean, it, it's, it's so relatable to me. Yeah. I, I really enjoy uh, in your writing uh, in general is I think you, you have a really great descriptive ability. Uh, and one of my favorite articles that you wrote for us my time with Maribel. It doesn't really relate to the question I'm asking other than I, th- I I just really like how you describe things and how you sort of can make these, you made these the, these sort of turns of phrase. But um, in, in the book, there was uh, a part where I think it's Lucy and Donna are, are thinking back or, or Lucy is thinking back to um, a situation when they were kids, probably, um, I, for- I forget how old, maybe like 12 or something like that. That's about and right. she mentions that they made they made sort of a pact that they were going to be cis and which which is s i s s which stands for sisters and shit situations right mm-hmm. and I just chuckle because I think that's such a great great little thing and it and it and it sounds like something like kids would make up right yeah. and um whenever i heard when I heard sisterhood or I heard um like sisters, I thought of sisterhood. You know, and sort of like that stereotypical, you know, black people call each other brother and sister and like that, like that, that sisterhood. Was there supposed to, was there that like double meaning in that or was it just something that you came up there like they were sisters or they were close? Yeah, there was a little bit of a double meaning because, you know, they were like sisters, but it was kind of done in a jokey way. Right. Um, Because basically they were just two young girls trying to survive in like a white supremacist town existence. So I really like that. I know like as kids, you do come up with silly little things to make light. It helps connect you and creates this bond. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was one of those things that I wanted to. Um, it didn't really have a black sisterhood slant to it, but okay. just sisterhood in general, because I do think sisterhood is so important. And it was also something that I could. I don't want to give any spoilers, but refer back just to like show the bonding and why this relationship, um, Donna was such an important relationship to Lucy. Yeah. Talking about those three friends, the Christie character <laughs> really reminds me of like a Tommy Laren or, you know, that's yeah, what was yeah. coming to my mind. Like that kind of sort of, you know, all American girl, probably the prettiest girl in her town, you know, intelligent. 
and as you know, as you get to know Christy more and more, um, as you know, repre- reprehensible her message is, um, as she, you know, as you mentioned, she has like a YouTube channel that comes from after being a survivor of the of the um, mass shooting. That's like the ma- major incident that overhangs the whole um, novel. Yeah, I I started feeling bad for her, like sorry for her, mm-hmm. and almost like pitied her in a way is that strange like was that is that am i like totally misinterpreting that no i mean because you know if she was completely one-dimensional i don't think i would have been doing a great job at it sure um because you wouldn't understand why lucy even bothered with her anymore right um so there is a connection there is like you know nobody's completely black and white well that's not true most people are not completely black and white <laughs> yeah true <laughs> they're not all sociopaths yeah she had some endearing and some you know sympathetic empathetic moments and i feel like it started off more so and then it kind of you know she had her own arc i guess yeah, I don't think it's weird at all that you felt that. Yeah, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. Like maybe in the more in the beginning, and then like you know, as as, as her arc progressed, maybe it, it should have sort of fallen off. But like, uh, and for me, it almost was like opposite that. I was like, uh, at first, I was like, oh, she's just sort of, you know, she sucks. But then, like, as you get to know her family a little bit more, just like even some of like the you know, just some of the stuff that happens between her and Lucy. I just started feeling sad for her. Like you as a reader, you kind of become more aware of your own biases, right? Because like, I I felt that way too. And I think gradually it occurred to me that that was probably a choice that, you know, Jessica made as a writer to make her seem pitiable, but also, you know, like that reflects our, our own conditioning to, probably have much more empathy for these, you know, cute salt of the earth, white women. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Than than we would to somebody like Donna ostensibly from the same place. And the only main difference is that uh, one is white and the other is black. I think the book was really, really deft at gradually revealing Christie's complexities and her flaws in a way that still made the reader keep that pity, even though you know she's terrible because she keeps doing things that are selfish, Mm -hmm. but then you keep feeling like the reader keeps trying to make excuses for that behavior based on what they know. But then at some point you realize, oh, this is what's wrong with the system is that my I'm I'm reacting this way to this character and like I think that 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 kind of makes the work art to me is mm. because there's like an interaction between the page and the person reading it and then along with discovering the character you also discover things about yourself. That makes me so happy because I did did really like work hard on trying to get the balance right and to reveal how the reader is perceiving the different characters as well as how Lucy, the, you know, narrator, main protagonist is um, interacting and what 
what her decisions are and how difficult just it is. Like these these characters, they're in our lives, right? We they're familiar. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, like, yeah. I had to put the book down so many times because I was so angry. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I know that bitch. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, the book was intense. Um, just riveting. It really was. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I was like, I got to read this because we're doing this thing. It was like, once I started reading and I committed to reading it, I was like, I, I, I couldn't stop scrolling on my computer. I didn't have, we don't have a paper version. So, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop reading it. It was just, I wanted, and because there was always something. And I think it, this goes to how like, you, you're just the craft of your pacing and how you, you structured this, that there was always something I want to know how this resolves or what the next, you know, what happens next. Like, how, how is Lucy going to handle what happened right now? Like, you know, I mentioned the conversation with Jacob, like, how, is that where it's going to just sort of stop? You dropped hints about um, Lucy's like uh, ad- adoption, right? And the circumstances mm-hmm. of her adoption. You know, when you mentioned something about the birth mother, I'm like, I need to know what happens. <laughs> okay. I need to know. And like it, 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 I mean, it didn't happen for a while, but I'm like, this is like, it, and it kept, the, it, you drop that. And then I'm like, you know, as things are going on and Lucy's saying things and, and she's, she's spending time with her girlfriend and all this stuff. What does what happen? Like, what is that truth of what her birth mother and what, when she learned it? Cause you know that Lucy knows, right? It's not like something that you discover yeah. with her. It's like told to you. How is that interacting with it? It was, um, really well you know it, it was really well paced uh, i thought maybe that's a weird word word to talk about a book about but no not um, at all and and yeah and and that the reveal about the birth mother is just i, I mean i i was i was i was teary-eyed in, at multiple points in the book but like that sort of that detail i think for me really just hit home uh, hard Aww. so it, it was but in a good way right i mean it was in, in a good way yeah you know, I'm glad that you picked up um, on the little hints along the way because I didn't, I want it to be really subtle, but to kind of have a couple points here and there and sort of have you forget because that's how life is, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This big thing happening and then some other big thing happens and, you know, you forget, you kind of get off track. You have to focus on whatever's right in front of you at the moment. So, yeah, but eventually, you know, a lot of things are interconnected because that's, how it works. Some of the moments where I think you describe a scene where, you know, her, her father, her adoptive father says something, I think pretty shocking. Uh, and then sort of, you know, Lucy overhears it. I think for me, I'm like, Oh yeah, she just sort of let it go. She didn't really confront any of them. Didn't say to her parents, I heard you say that like I had been abandoned or whatever. And these bad words about her birth, her birth mother, and like, I, I think for some people, they might be like, well, that doesn't ring true. But for me, I know that's true because I've just heard those stories. And I know from, you know, if you're an adoptee, you're not immediately going to be like, you know, questioning that or like, you know, things like that. You're not going to confront your parents, especially if you're like a young child. Yeah. So, I thought that was really definitely done. Thank you. Glad to hear that. Most adoptees, I don't actually know an adoptee who hasn't overheard um, or been directly asked these kinds of questions. Yeah. You know, uh, it's just, it's so intrusive just being yourself. I, you know, 
even just, I don't know, when I was still in Boston, I went to the liquor store and I got carded and, you know, the guy was, this is before I changed my last name actually. Um, oh, really? So yeah, he was just like, oh, you know, he's like, Are you married or whatever? And I was like, no, you just have to give your life story. And then he's like, oh, and like, well, I was adopted. And he's like, oh, before you know it, like somebody's making all these assumptions on your life. Mm-hmm. They're asking a million questions. Like, I don't even know this guy's name. And he already knows my life story. And it's sort of, um, and, and, and a lot of the time it can be well-meaning statements where they learn you're adopted and then they learn a little bit more about like, you know, if we're, if you're non-white, right, they might be like, oh, how did, you know, you're, you're not white or whatever. Um, and you, you, they'll say something like, oh, you know, at least you, you know, were raised by a loving family or something. Mm-hmm. Like you're assuming a lot. Yeah. And there's just a ton of assumptions and even that statement, but people say that not because they want to like hurt you. They're, they think they're, they're being nice, like understanding. Yeah. And, and so that's their intention. There's so many loaded assumptions in like everything that somebody says to you. Cause mm-hmm. I was just thinking of this woman that I worked with in the past. Uh, she had an adoptee daughter from okay. China and literally every time she, she would talk to me <laughs> about her a <laughs> <Yeah>. lot, <laughs> yeah. uh, first of all. And then every time she talked about her, she would say, China is so poor. My God, the village we got her from, it was so poor, so dirty, you know? And it just like, and it just made me think like, what does she say to her daughter? God, I like, Mm -hmm. and she means well, you know, she loves her. She spends so much time and money on her, but just these statements they're yeah. terrible. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of remind me of, uh, do you remember, Adam, you did a podcast with Creighton, I think. And she yeah. was saying that she would get a lot of these like white savior assumptions that like, oh, you were saved from living as a peasant girl in China. Mm-hmm. And she was like, one day she just flipped the assumption. She was like, there's dignity in being a peasant girl in China, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's so powerful, but like it, it just makes me so sad that some people are forced to live a lifetime, live into adulthood before they are able to even take that little piece of dignity for themselves. Yeah. yeah. And it's very hard to do that. I think I, I try not to be as harsh with people who don't, uh, aren't able to come to that, um, you know, in the moment. Do you think that these days is actually easier at least for you know asian east asian transracial adoptees Mm because they can be like well fuck you a peasant girl in china wouldn't have covid and they would hear (laughs) i i I think yes i think with um if they're in a in a state of mind to sort of be open to a message that's not purely like asia bad right Mm mm-hmm then yes, I think it's a bit easier now. Is you know, well, I mean, if you're Korean, let's say, to look at at South Korea and be like, this place isn't so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if, especially if I think for uh, adoptees like myself who are in our mid to late thirties, I think we're probably the youngest that can be like, well, I was born in the eighties, uh, and maybe even some people in the nineties, 
and my life would have probably been fairly okay. Yeah. Starting around that time, Korea was not, you know, was not not as rich as America, but it wasn't as it dirt poor poverty as it was like right after the war. So for some of like the older adoptees who are in their 50s, maybe some of them even in the 60s in their 60s, I think it's harder even today. Like it's hard even today because they would be like, well, I was born in the 60s or 70s. And if I had just, if I had stayed, then, you know, it would, they, they can't quite take today and be, be like, well, you know, it would have been great. That's from more personal perspective. But from like the perspective that Creighton was talking about, where it's just sort of saying like, in general, even if I were a peasant, I, could, I would still have dignity. Then I, I don't know whether, uh, you know, Korea being rich today makes that any easier. I think that's a much more of a political and, uh, you know, a political standpoint um, rather than like a personal, like, would my life have been okay? It depends. For, for conversations like that about the country, I think maybe it's easier for adoptees to have that, especially younger adoptees, to, to make those statements. When it comes to topics around race, I think it's always really tricky, and that's why we have so many uh, adult transracial adoptees who are still so tied to whiteness, because to lose, mm-hmm. to let go of that is so often losing that family or the fear of losing that family. Right. And a culture yeah. too, I think, right? Because uh-huh. a lot of, you know, a lot of Asian adoptees at least are like, well, I don't even know what it means to be fully white, let alone Asian or Asian American. You know, which one do you hold on to? Like, and, and I think the instinct is going to be holding on to the whiteness that at least I sort of think I know what it is. It's familiar. And, and, and there was a, there was a passage um, and I think it was around the, one of the incidents where, you know, talking, it's Lucy um, overhearing her, her parents talking where she wonders about the why of, of adoption. Uh, and I think that question of why it even happens is a, such a fundamental question, but is forgotten yeah. and covered in the white saviorism, as you mentioned, Diana, and sort of these weird counterfactual arguments of like, well, would you have rather been aborted? Would you have rather been a peasant and poor? A prostitute on the street is the common one that women get. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Would you have rather been sold into sex slavery? You know, that kind of thing. It's a horrible thing to say to somebody. Yeah. I've actually seen a statistic that the largest number of sex or just human trafficking is actually children within the U.S. Yeah, that doesn't so surprise it's, me. So, it's just a completely wrong <laughs> assumption and yeah. it's super yeah. racist. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and, and it's just like on an individual level, like a horrible thing to say to somebody. Like your, uh, your problems don't matter because it could have been worse. Right, yeah. exactly. We talk about like silencing. I mean, that, that's such a silencing thing to say. Just be like, shut up and be grateful. Yeah, so like the fact that you you put that in the book, Jessica, I thought I, I, I noticed it right away. I'm like, she's at you know, she's asking the reader to think about these questions and and the question of why. Uh, and to to sort of challenge that. The book is a challenge, I think, right? It's almost like a direct challenge. Like every page and every sort of conversation is a challenge for the reader to think more. And that goes to your point you were making, Diana, about how like, you know, art is about that interaction between 
whatever was created, like the, a novel and the reader. Like the whole thing was just con- a constant question, which I really enjoyed. Good. I'm glad. You know, at certain times I was like, is this too real life? Is this just stay too much stating the obvious? But like, that's from my perspective as my lived experience. So yeah, it was frustrating. It was definitely frustrating, but really fulfilling at the same time to be able to like call certain things out and have these conversations that mirror other conversations I've had. Yeah, I mean, it was also really important for me to make Lucy an empowered person, right? She's not just a mm-hmm. victim. She's she's somebody who's dealing with all the shit that's going on that's, that she's, you know, been dealt. Very often when you have characters, especially a female character, a woman character that, um, you know, has gone through trauma, they're portrayed as the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really wanted it to feel like empowering for other people who've gone through similar things that she's gone through in life. Yeah, thing after thing after thing is happening to this poor girl. And I'm like, maybe this is a little too much. But then I had to sort of like check myself and been like, you know what? There are people who've probably gone through even more than this. And it goes to the challenge. It's like you're challenging the reader to be like, this reaction I'm having, why am I having it? Um, I just had to remind myself like, no, like I probably know people in my own life that have gone through just as much and similar as Lucy has. Uh, and, um, you know, and they're fighters just like her. So, um, yeah, it really, it really made me, <laughs> and I thank you. It made me like check my assumptions on that. There's no reason why someone couldn't be like her. That's really good to hear because, uh, it was a big part of what drove me to keep, you know, to write this book, this specific book, because a lot of times, you know, there's a focus on one thing, one main event, right? Mm. But it doesn't it doesn't factor in for any predisposed trauma that we have or, or our background. Like life isn't neat like that. You don't get to finish one thing and then the other thing comes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just like now with COVID and mm-hmm. <laughs> forest and the fires. fire. Yeah. And the fires in exactly. uh, California. And, oh, you know, actually what you just said now, Adam, it reminded me of, uh, did you guys see the whole, the terror season two? No, I haven't watched it yet. Is it, um, is it the one in that's about Japanese internment and stuff? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's these, uh, Japanese Americans who are interned during world war II and they're being, you know, (laughs) beaten by FBI agents and, uh, shuttled from place to place. Yeah. And they have to deal with these ghosts. Like demons and shit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who are, who are like hunting and killing this family. And, uh, one of the reviews of the show was like, it was too much haven't these people been through enough and it occurred to me that a lot of times like no a lot of asian families are like that you know or you know any marginalized person they're constantly dealing with these institutional issues meanwhile they got like family skeletons in the closet Mm -hmm. and shit is happening to them politically too so it's just it's felt very real to me and I, I actually liked that, how so much was going on with her. And yet the whole way 
the whole whole time she was very empowered as as you said jessica good yeah you know about that like what i've noticed like i used to be afraid to to say that i had you know any trauma which is kind of ridiculous considering the stuff that i've gone through in my life yeah the more i've talked to other survivors of different traumas the more i realize how uncommon it is for you know especially people of color to only have one trauma the, the more marginalization marginalizations we have the more chances for it to multiply that's i mean that's cptsd i have it it's complex post traumatic stress disorder basically either ex- experiencing a prolonged trauma or a compounded trauma Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I just think it's something that people don't really talk about very often and like there's so many people going around, you know, probably undiagnosed with it because we're just trying to survive <laughs> and it's like a juggling. Okay, which thing am I going to try to survive today? That's so true. And there's a if you if you have trauma, you're like addicted to the drama or something. So it's like whatever happens <laughs> to you, you keep putting yourself into similar situations and thus that that's the, like another way that the trauma compounds as well yeah unresolved yeah especially like if basically if you don't get the help you need at the times that you need it most is how that happens like i think you were saying that um like women who have been sexually assaulted that they'll become hypersexual. And mm-hmm. like, I think that's an example of that, right? Because you keep going to that, um, those situations where you were traumatized. I think the stimulation in your body, like, mm-hmm. um, I hate that book. I could not read that book, The Body Keeps the Score. And I found out why later I couldn't put it down. Uh, I mean, I couldn't finish it. <laughs> I had to put it down. And I just got this, these really gross vibes from it. And like, you know, it just felt really difficult for me as a survivor of sexual abuse, assault, and assault. Wait, what yeah. is what is that book? What is it about? It's called The Body Keeps the Score, and it's about how trauma stays in the body. Actually, the guy who wrote that book has a lot of controversy. He was ousted from his own uh, clinic from the women there because of. I don't think they named it exactly, but there were a lot of complaints about sexual uh, discomfort. Wow. So, yeah. Hmm. So, so yeah. <laughs> so I, what I was picking up on was legit, which felt really good to hear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of truth to that about the way trauma stays in the body. And I try to do, you know, physical things to help work through it because it does, if you don't, if you don't do anything about it, it just, it finds other ways. It's, it's looking, it's like, desperate to find other outlets. Um, what are the things that the physical things that you do? Well, I think, you know, while I do yoga pretty regularly, uh, which has breathing and meditation in it with movement. So that helps me a lot. Um, sometimes I do these. <laughs> this is kind of funny. Well, actually, I put it into Lucy. I do these K-pop dance oh, oh yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah she mentioned she does like yeah she was yeah yeah yeah, yeah. those are awesome, awesome. I was, yeah. like when i'm youtube <laughs> that's so cool i mean it is kind of funny and the first time i started trying it it was like you know i felt kind of silly because i don't even i don't know being an adoptee i don't know the language so i don't even know 
what's being said, but it's just a good release. And I felt like connected to my culture while like working through trauma and having fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, sorry, not to go back in the conversation, but it's, I find it uh, uh, like um, when, when you mentioned, Diana, the, the terror, there's a, an adoptee actor in that, Lee, Lee Shorten. Uh, oh, that's and, right. Yeah. So, another shout, another, another shout adoptee, yeah. uh, 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 a creative person out there. I didn't um, know that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. He, and he's been in The Man in the High Castle. Um, you know, we, we talk occasionally, and, uh, but uh, he's a good guy. One of his short um, films, because he created a short film about adoption. Oh, um, I saw that. It was great. Yeah, and it's really, really, really good. I, I, I think it's one of the best when it comes to that. And, and I'm hoping that <laughs> you know he'll find the time and and um to to make it more of a feature. But you know, yeah. So he he's an amazing. He's amazing. And uh, I just wanted to shout him out because you mentioned the terror, which he's in. The question I had because this character. Um, to me, was sort of the most out of place in the novel. But then, you know, when you think about it, it, it makes sense. Uh, Lynette is like this sort of mm-hmm. grifter person that 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 injects herself into Lucy's life when Lucy's ha- has like a you know a, a moment of weakness, you know, which is totally understandable because of all the shit that's been going on. Was there like a were, were was there a Lynette or Lynettes <laughs> in your life? They are everywhere. I have to say, I loved writing her because it helps. It was, well, first of all, she was just funny in a lot of ways. Um, But I've had so many Lynette's and Karen's. Well, since people haven't read the book, I'll just say like these, these are the characters that convey uh, different levels, different ways of what I call white women fuckery. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're the ones who go out of their way to convince us that like they're cool with us. They're not racist. There's a power dynamic involved and they, they're always trying to help. They, they act like they they really have our best interest in mind, but really they're super manipulative and they try to force us to be like what they need us to be. And they put on this, this whole act because of the power dynamic that's very often at play, it makes it really difficult to like get away. You know, sometimes they're your boss. Sometimes, you know, it's this person mm. who has this unique opportunity. But like once you do something uh, that they don't approve of, it usually comes out. Lucy's boss was like that too. Yeah, the Karen, that was Karen, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, literally call it Karen, <laughs> but with the C. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the C. And the thing is, oh God. So, like, originally her name was Becky, but I had two of my close friends' names are Becky. Oh. And I didn't want to do that to them. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I know. This is before Karen became a thing or that I knew of it becoming a thing. I named her Karen, but C A R I N, because that's like actually how this woman who was sort of like a senior designer to me um, in my old job. She, that's how her name was spelled, and she was very much like this too. Oh, <laughs> wow. like, oh I'm going to take <laughs> you under my wing, and I'm going to give you, you know, special treatment or whatever. But you know, there's always a motive. There's always a lot involved. My mom, when she was younger, she would complain all the time that her female coworkers would just straight up lie to her about their lives to see if they could get her to say something about herself. So they yeah. would always be like, oh, you know, things aren't great with my husband right now. 
to try to get her to say something bad about her marriage. Mm-hmm. So for what purpose, though? I I don't. I mean, who the fuck knows? <laughs> like- I think like it's a number of things. I think one of the things is so they feel like they're close to somebody of color. Mm. You know? oh. It's like I'm not racist because look at me with my Oh, okay. So it's ego stuff, okay. I think that's that's part of it and sometimes it's for gossip, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just pure gossip, right? The drama. I was thinking it could possibly be be to try to make yourself feel better about your own life. Yes. Because mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you know, it's like you you exaggerate how bad your life is. And then hopefully someone will be like, oh, that's nothing. My my life is even worse. And then secretly in your mind, you're like, Haha, my life is so much better than theirs. Yeah, those people exist. They're awful. They do. They do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a disease. But that, that reminds me about, you know, talking about designers and things like that. But, and I know that this was a question that you, you wanted to ask, right, Diana? Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of people, you know, more conservative or um, even white liberals Mm. would be uncomfortable with this book. And especially the publishing industry is kind of full of people like that. So, the question that went through my head the entire time I was reading this was, um, like, how was it getting this book published? What was the process? And did you have difficulties? And how bad were they? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so this is a really good question. And, you know, it's not the best time to talk about it, but I will because I have so much to say about it. So, okay, where should I start? The publishing industry, as you, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, it's predominantly white. The higher up you go, the even more white it is. There's very limited opportunity. So when I started querying, I predominantly chose agents of color. I had like, you know, you keep a spreadsheet. I threw in after like the fourth round, some white women who said that they were looking for diversity, They're like own voices, LGBT, all this stuff. So I was really hoping to get an agent of color, but like nobody was responding. So I did get a number of responses from these white agents. And uh, I got a lot of feedback saying, wow, I really love your writing and this story, but I unfortunately didn't fall in love with the characters. Um, I didn't relate, (laughs) I didn't connect to the characters. And, you know, I'm in a really large network for writers of colors, uh, writers of color, and um, we've talked about this, and they get the same offensive feedback. Uh, One agent even suggested I back off on the race and focus more on, like, what connected the women. You know, I really didn't want to sacrifice those things because to me, like, that's the heart of the story. It is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, I had my non-negotiables, but, you know, I really thought that because there's such timely content in this book that, you know, it would find the right person. I really believed that. And that's why, honestly, you know, I, I started it in December of 2016. Um, you know, I had finished it a long time ago. And then I went back into it when I'm just like, you know, this is really annoying. I'm not going to change this book to please the white gatekeepers. In some ways, queer just would have been fine, or Asian might have been fine, but a queer Asian adoptee, 
um, mm. was just asking a lot, especially when it's so critical of race and white women <laughs> and these people, majority yeah. white women. I gave up on that. I totally gave up on that. And I thought about small presses. Small presses are notoriously more open to the, this type of work, but they tend to lack marketing budgets. You know, I'm a designer. That's my background. I used to work in advertising, and you can imagine why I don't anymore. If you know anything, I talk about with capitalism and yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I that was a very lucrative career for me, but it, it was short lived because it broke my heart in a million places. Yeah. So I have a design background. I have, you know, I'm connected to editors and those kinds of people, and I've done a lot of this work. So a few years ago, actually, when I was putting out Codium. I knew I didn't even try to market that book because it's like that was very specific, uh, very niche. So mm -hmm. I went down to my local city hall and I went through the process of starting my own publishing company. It's not cheap, oh, wow. but it's not terribly prohibitive. Like if you're, you, well, you, you know, you're creators, you make sacrifices. I live yeah. a certain way to afford doing what I love something that I think is more meaningful than for me working in advertising. So, so yeah, I just said, you know what, if I go down, if I try to go down the small press route now, which I didn't want to do, it was going to take at least another year. I felt like in January when it was completely done after I had worked with a sensitivity reader, I had already worked with the editor. I said, fuck it. I'm going to put it out. Like I did Curium which was my last novel, um, that did surprisingly well, much better than I expected it to. So yeah, it was just That's a decision awesome. I made. I'm not going to sacrifice the book I want to write to get accepted by these white gatekeepers. And somehow I convinced Ellie Henney, if you don't know her, she's a black race commentator who I absolutely love. She, she's the one who coined super minority. She has like a podcast and she might be writing a book. I think she sort of hinted at that before. She's all over Facebook, Twitter. She's starting to, you know, build up her fan base there more. But like, I didn't think it was going to happen because of the pandemic. She was also finishing her master's program. She was moving to a different city and all of the fucking racial trauma that the black American community has been trying to survive. I'm like, this isn't going to happen because there was another, uh, there was an Asian uh, writer who I also asked to blur, but she had so much hardship that it couldn't happen. So I didn't think it was going to happen. I was really bummed out, but she came through. Ellie Henny came through. So that saved it a bit for me, considering so many other things are messed up with it with the um, pandemic. But anyways, that's a long-winded way to say like I'm hoping that someday I'll have the means to publish other marginalized writers' work who are in the same position because mm. we have so many stories that just can't get through these gatekeepers or they have we have to make huge sacrifices and then our communities are upset with us because it's not as it's not it's not as real as we want it yeah. to be. I wasn't aware that you had started your own publishing company and that you're, this is a self-published, self-published, but in the most professional way, right? That's awesome. Uh, and, I mean, um, you're, you I, created amazing. a platform. I, I think that's just incredible. Yeah, Well, it's exactly. probably very, it's very similar to what you're all doing with plan A, right? You, you refuse to be silenced or censored and said, we're just going to do our own thing. It, yeah, in a way, but I mean, you have a publishing house. Yeah. It's similar in a in a conceptual sense, but I think in the execution, you know, 
Yeah, I think that's it's super, super cool. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it's really unfortunate that so much stuff doesn't make it or when it does, because people self-publish and they don't have like the design background or the connections to real editors, et cetera. Like it, when they do put it out, it's not as good as it could be if they had the support. So I really hope, I mean, I'm just really honestly just getting by myself, but I'm hoping someday right, I will right. be able to, like that's that's sort of a long-term dream of mine is to help other, you know, mostly writers of color get our stories out the way we want to, because I know how hard it is. And it's it's offensive, the amount of, oh, we love it, but... You know, mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. always, well, you didn't connect because it's not for you. There, you know, these characters, you don't know yeah. enough people like me, I guess. You know, it's frustrating. Adam had the idea a long time ago, and uh, the team keeps bringing it up every now and then of actually uh, making a physical book for Planning Magazine. So maybe we could work together in the near yeah. future. That came to mind mm -hmm. instantly too, Diana. I'm glad that you yeah, you okay. mentioned it because that, that that's I what I was thinking. I love to hear more about it. Yeah, so I just wanted to put this into context with how I came to this decision. So you know how I told you I went through my own racial actualization journey, right? Um, for adoptees, transracial adoptees. Um, anyway, mm -hmm. so I don't know, 15 ish maybe a little bit more years ago, back when I had a white last name, I was still writing white protagonists with or, or protagonists with an undisclosed race. Um, I got an agent in a heartbeat. I've been writing for a really long time and it, it took no, I was prepared for how it, everybody says, oh, it's gonna take years and years before you get your agent. I got my agent so fast. He signed me on for two books and he ultimately didn't sell them. And at the time I was really devastated, but now I'm really glad. <laughs> Um, but the point being, um, I went back to reread those stories to see what they had. Did I lose my edge? What changed? Uh, but they were mm. terrible. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> they, they were so bad and there was so much wrong with them, but yet I had a white last name. I wasn't writing about race. The characters were white. The stories I were telling were very palatable to a white audience, you know? So like when I put that in context with my last book that I, I, I'm pretty proud of and this one, it's like really angering that that was able, those books were able to get so quickly picked up and given a chance at least. And these were too, too out there. Yeah. Not surprising, yeah. though. I know. I know. Well, looking at it now, I'm like, what was I high to, <laughs> to think anybody, <laughs> any of those people were going to accept it as it was? You know, maybe if I had said, yes, uh, I'm open to changing some of these things, I would have been able to get it through, but it wouldn't have been something I'd be proud of. I would have felt like a total sellout and really bad about myself. I know some people say you have to make sacrifices like that to just get get through, but I don't know. I'm older now. There's some things that are just like non-negotiable. There are people that probably um, share a big part of that mm -hmm. with you, but then have never, haven't done what you, you've decided you're going to do, which is you're just going 
can you're going to tell your stories in the in 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 the way you want to tell them um for the audience you want to tell them yeah. for may the chips fall where they fall and you're not going to continue to uh suppress who you are to get things That's published because uh, i think that goes to like sort of like our, uh, um our our, our our jessica uh other jessica yeah. <laughs> uh, jessica Ree, she um you know, she was saying that like sometimes bad representation is worse than none. Yes. Totally. You know, or it's better to have none than bad representation. That's totally dead on. I, I agree. It's like I'd, I'd rather not than have something that I'm ashamed of, where the people I'm doing that I really meant to write this for are going to be upset or criticize me, thinking that's what I meant to do. Again, I think especially as a transracial adoptee. And especially as somebody who had to fight really hard to come into myself, it's, yeah, it made it so it wasn't really a good option. It wasn't an option I was willing to to take. I just wanted to, again, thank you for being on the podcast with us today, um, Jessica. It's an incredible novel. Um, you know, it's coming out September 1st. Um, everyone was falling. Diana, did you have any closing thoughts or comments that you wanted to make? The story of you starting your own publishing house, that's very, very hopeful. You know, there's always an audience, so there's no need to sell out anymore. Society is crumbling, you know. It's yeah. it's it's yeah. gonna be doomsday any day now. So what is the fucking point of selling out now? Like just do what you gotta do to say what you gotta say. That's yeah. it. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, well, I, I really wanted to thank you both, um, and I'm really glad to be a part of you with with the articles here and there, and that you're so supportive of what I do. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much. All right. So, um, the novel is Everyone Was Falling. Um, it'll be available September 1st. You can pre-order. Uh, and um, <laughs> yes, pre-order. You can pre-order now. We'll have links and everything. You know, I was thinking, we've done these like book giveaways before, right? We did it for Chanel Miller's book. Oh, yeah. Book That's a great idea. We might try to do something like that for this book. The details will be out later, but we'll probably just purchase a few and then tweet out and put everything out and be like, you know, if you want a copy, let us know and we'll just raffle oh, it off. That would be really cool. We'll try to make that happen. But again, thank you so much, Esco, for being on. Diana, it was great. Um, being in conversation with you again. It's been too long. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.